it was a fairly significant term because you saw the court, first of all, trying very hard to reach consensus so that they could avoid having 4-4 split decisions during the period before Justice Gorsuch joined the court. And uh, there was a lot of decisions that continue along the lines that the Roberts Court has charted out that essentially restrict access to the courts in a variety of different ways. They put off deciding things regarding the, uh, the Trump issue, the North Carolina voter ID law. They decided to essentially determine that there was not circumstances where they couldn't actually determine who had standing to uh, follow up on the case. And so there's a, I think even though they were trying to reach consensus in a number of ways, it's quite clear that they were unable to reach consensus in, in some very, very important places and sort of kick the can down the road. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites. Uh, also host another Legal Talk Network program called Law Technology Now, along with Monica Bay. My co-host here on Lawyer to Lawyer, Jay Craig Williams, is out of the country today and unable to be with us. Before we get to today's topic, let me just take a moment to thank our sponsors, Clio and Latera. Clio is the cloud-based practice management software that makes it easy for you to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. You can try it for free at clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. And Latera is the authority on document creation, collaboration, and control. Increase your productivity, collaborate securely, and ensure protection of your vital information. Learn more at www.latera.com. That's L-I-T-E-R-A. Well, the Supreme Court ended its 2016 to 2017 uh, term on Monday, June 27th. Decisions were handed down in a variety of cases, including uh, cases involving big corporations, church and state, voting rights, and most notably the controversial travel ban put forth by President Trump. Today uh, on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look back at the Supreme Court's uh, most recent term, the cases that came out of it, uh, the addition of Justice Gorsuch to the court, uh, and take a moment to also look ahead at uh, what's coming down the pike uh, for the court going forward. To help us look at the Supreme Court's term today, we have two guests. Let me introduce each of them in turn. First of all, I'd like to welcome to the show attorney and constitutional scholar David J. Shostokas, author of the book Constitutional Soundbites, which grew from his weekly radio show, Constitutionally Speaking, and his website, Constitutional Legal Education and News, featured at shastokas.com. David's newest book, Creating the Declaration of Independence, takes the reader through the thoughts of the men in the political climate of the day as they forged the bold and barrier-breaking document embracing the law of nature and nature's God as a foundation for self-government. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, David Shastokas. Thank you so much, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Nice to have you. 
Also joining us today is Carolyn Shapiro, Associate Professor of Law at Chicago Kent College of Law and co-director of the Institute on the Supreme Court of the United States at the law school. From 2014 to 2016, Professor Shapiro took a leave of absence from Chicago Kent to serve as Illinois Solicitor General. She also blogs at iSCOTUS Now, which she co-edits, and on the Chicago Kent faculty blog uh, and its related CK Now, and on the American Constitution Society blog as a guest blogger. She also posts at the Huffington Post. Welcome to the show, Carolyn Shapiro. Thank you for having me. So uh, I wanted to start with kind of the big picture, and we'll try and get into some of the details going forward. But Carolyn, I wonder if I could start with you and ask, how would you characterize this most recently completed term overall? Well, overall, it was it was a relatively quiet term, at least in terms of the types of cases that normally are headline grabbers. But it was a fairly significant term because you saw the court, first of all, trying very hard to reach consensus so that they could avoid having 4-4 split decisions during the period before Justice Gorsuch joined the court. And uh, there was a lot of decisions that continue along the lines that the Roberts Court has charted out that essentially restrict access to the courts in a variety of different ways and using a variety of different mechanisms. Uh, David, same question to you. What's your sort of big picture characterization of this most recently completed term? As uh, Professor Shapiro said, there was uh, certainly some restrictions on access to the courts, which were uh, which were curious. In some uh, in some respects, some of the things that have happened was what they didn't do. One of the cases that we'll be talking about has to do with uh, California gun laws and the fact that they essentially denied certain that matter. They put off deciding uh, things regarding the. Uh, the Trump issue, the North Carolina voter ID law, they decided to essentially determine that there was not circumstances where they couldn't actually determine who had standing to uh, follow up on the case. And so there's a, I think even though they were trying to reach consensus in a number of ways, it's quite clear that they were unable to reach consensus in, in some very, very important places and sort of kick the can down the road. Why did it seem that they were focused on trying to reach consensus in these cases? Uh, were they simply trying to avoid a deadlock because they only had eight justices for much of the term? Was that what they were doing? And, and did that? how did that impact their decisions in cases, Carolyn? Well, I definitely think that they were trying to do that. You know, if they, if they split 4-4, what happens is the case, the lower court decision is affirmed by an equally divided court and the lower court decision stands but there's no Supreme Court precedent, no guidance. And that can be very problematic, in particular in situations where they took a case, for example, because there was a circuit split, or so that you have different law in different parts of the country, depending on how the lower courts have ruled. But in general, I think Roberts likes to try to find consensus. He likes to try to come up with rulings that at least at first blush, appear to be fairly narrow. Um, and then he may later build on them for broader, more controversial propositions. Uh, but I think that as an institutional matter, the Chief Justice prefers for the court to avoid 5-4 decisions or obviously 4-4 decisions when possible. And I, I think you saw that most recently in the Holy Trinity Church case that was decided at the very end of the term. It was actually 
a 7-2 decision requiring the state of Missouri to consider providing funds directly to a church to repave its playground through a state program that provides money to repave playgrounds with uh, recycled tires. Missouri had refused to do that because it has a state constitutional provision prohibiting any funding going to religious institutions. And the court said, no, you can't do that at least here. And it's the at least here that's sort of the, the narrow part of the decision that clearly brought at least some of the justices on board with the chief justice's majority decision. And it's impossible to know at this point how broadly future courts will read that precedent. And wasn't that the case in which I think was it Justice Thomas who was, who was kind of critical of the court for the way it tried to narrow the holding there? Yeah. So there's a footnote in the majority decision that says, essentially, this case is about the refusal of the state to provide funds for this playground repaving program. We're not talking about any other type of uh, restrictions on funding to religious institutions or any other type of discrimination against religious institutions, whether that would be constitutional or not. And Justice Thomas, joined by uh, Justice Gorsuch, I believe, said that footnote was too narrow, refused to join that footnote, although they joined the rest of the opinion um, and, and disagreed with the narrowing effort of that footnote. Justice Breyer, who didn't, in fact, join the majority opinion but wrote separately, basically in his separate opinion, said, reiterated what that footnote said and said, I'm, I agree with the result with that kind of caveat. So David, Carolyn mentions uh, Justice Gorsuch. I wondered, uh, I, re- I read a, a great quote somewhere that said uh, Justice Gorsuch kind of defined the court's term this year, especially when he wasn't there. What's your perception of uh, the impact uh, the Justice Gorsuch nomination had on the court this year and, you know, for the period of the term that he uh, actually sat on the court, uh, what was your impression of him? Well, certainly we've got a preview of what uh, Justice Gorsuch is going to be like in many respects. In many of the decisions, he agreed with the outcome of the court, but he also, as Professor Shapiro noted, would indicate that the court was doing things too narrowly. Uh, He certainly disagreed with the court when it came to the denial of certiorari in the uh, Second Amendment case out of California, and he's sided with Justice Thomas in a couple of reservations about the general court decision while concurring in the judgment. It seems as though he's kind of finding his way in terms of doing that and uh, joining the consensus, but opening the door to uh, broader decisions, both when it comes to uh, things like uh, church and state issues and when it comes to situations like uh, like the Second Amendment. His complaint, along with Justice Thomas on the, uh, on the Second Amendment denial of certiorari, was an indication that he would certainly view it much more broadly than, than the court did and indicated that the court currently is treating the Second Amendment as a second-class right. So I think he's uh, he, I think he's revealed some interesting things about himself in the early going, and I think it will uh, will have some uh, some impact. Carolyn, what about you? What's your impression so far? I mean, I imagine it takes some period of time for a, a new justice on the court to kind of really establish his or her presence there. But uh, you know, Justice Gorsuch uh, certainly had a lot of judicial experience before coming onto the court. So, what's your impression of what you've seen of him so far? Well, I agree with David. He's he's not uh, he's actually somewhat unusual in his apparent willingness very very early on in his tenure to write separately. Sometimes 
entirely by himself. And sometimes with a tone that I think some people find a little bit um, pedantic, as if he's telling his colleagues what to do or how to do their jobs better, um, although he's the new kid on the block. But whether that will stick is hard to say for, as you say, it, it can take a, a new justice a while to sort of figure out exactly what they want their role to be. Some of them come in because of that being fairly quiet and tentative and wait a while before they start speaking out separately as much as Justice Gorsuch has. But the fact that he's doing that off the bat, I don't think necessarily means that that's how he'll be conducting himself, say, three years from now. I guess one other, I guess, personnel question before we get on to some of the cases, and that's, of course, uh, Justice Kennedy. Uh, he was, again, uh, this term, a significant vote on the court. He was in the majority. I read uh, something like 90, more than 90 percent of the time. There have been persistent rumors, and I think I think it's now been confirmed, if I understand that, that he, he plans to retire sometime in 2018. What would be the impact on the court if Justice Kennedy does, in fact, retire? Well, let me just say, I don't think it's been confirmed that he's planning to retire. He reportedly told a clerkship applicant that he's thinking about retiring, but not that he's going to retire and certainly not that he's going to retire during any particular term, unless there's some news that's new that I've missed. Yeah, I I wasn't sure about that. I thought I had read that uh, report of that, so I'm sorry. I I stand corrected on that. I I think my Twitter feed would have blown up. (laughs) It would have been confirmed. You know, but obviously he is the the swing vote right now uh, between sort of the liberal bloc and the conservative bloc. So if he were to step down during the Trump administration, we would see a dramatic shift, uh, undoubtedly a dramatic shift in the overall ideological profile of the court. The most likely new swing justice would be Chief Justice Roberts, who is, you know, by, he's not a liberal justice by anybody's uh, by anybody's lights. So uh, you know, I I think to be honest, Justice Kennedy, whether or not he in fact steps down at the end of next term or at some other point in the next few years, depends obviously on many factors. Some of them personal, some of them health related, but I think also will depend on how chaotic things are with the Trump administration and our national. Politics. I think that if the Trump administration appears to be melting down, if there appears to be some kind of major constitutional crisis involving that presidency, which doesn't seem implausible at this point, um, <laughs> <It> certainly does. <laughs> uh, then I think Justice Kennedy might very well decide that it's not a good time to have a confirmation battle, and that he should wait. Interesting, David. Do you have any thoughts on, on Justice Kennedy's uh, influence on the court now, and what might happen going forward? Well, he's clearly, he's clearly as, a, as the professor pointed out, they been a swing vote. Everybody knows that situation. And I think he's obviously aware of the political implications and certainly the long-term implications for the court should he leave because certainly the president had selected Justice, uh, Justice Gorsuch off his previous list of 21. And you review the uh, previous list of 21 that he submitted during the uh, campaign for the People's Review you'll find more folks like Justice Gorsuch. So it would clearly tip the balance of the court. And uh, so the fight turns out to be, the real problem turns out to be in the Senate and the situation with, of course, the uh, having exercised the nuclear option, it may may make some difference. But uh, Kennedy's, 
obviously quite aware of the politics associated with his decision. On the other hand, he's not a young man, and I think it's as a practical matter, his comments to his potential clerks on the situation just recognizes the reality of uh, reality of that matter. I'm certainly not capable of getting into his mind, but I think he understands his his place in on the court and his place in history and the politics. It's very likely that we would never see something uh, on the. Uh, on the order of a Judge Bork, uh, Justice Thomas, kind of hearings for whoever uh, President Trump would uh, select as a potential successor. And, and I'm quite certain that those kinds of considerations are in Justice Kennedy's mind. Well, I want to move on to talking about some of the cases that were decided this term, but uh, let me just take a short break. So before we move on to uh, further discussion of these cases, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Please stay with us. Documents are the currency of business. They represent you in every business interaction. Executives need to know what changes have occurred in documents, what metadata risks exist, and how to encrypt, share, and collaborate securely. Patera simplifies the document creation and collaboration process to protect you from risk and loss of reputation. Patera offers better solutions for document lifecycle management so you can focus on doing what really matters www.latera.com. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months you sign up at their website, clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com, with the code L2L10, that's L2L, the number 10. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi, and with us today is uh, attorney and constitutional scholar David J. Shostokas, author of the book, Creating the Declaration of Independence, and Carolyn Shapiro, associate professor of law and co-director of the Institute on the Supreme Court of the United States at the Chicago Kent College of Law. And I, I think there seems to be a general agreement that this term differed from some and that there weren't a lot of, kind of blockbuster cases decided. But Carolyn, what if I asked you to, to pick one or two cases that really stood out to you as, as the most significant ones? I know you already mentioned Trinity Lutheran. What else? What, is there one or two other cases that really kind of jumped out at you as, as important this term? Yeah, there were two cases involving racial gerrymandering, one out of Virginia and one out of North Carolina. And in both of those cases, the court held that there was uh, unconstitutional racial gerrymandering in districting decisions. And what's interesting is that the the type of racial gerrymandering that's being complained about in those cases is different from prior racial gerrymandering cases that the Supreme Court has decided. In, in prior cases, starting in the 90s, the court sometimes struck down uh, congressional or other legislative districts as where race predominated unconstitutionally in cases that were brought by white voters who were unhappy about being in uh, majority-minority districts. What we see in these new cases is cases being brought by minority voters who are complaining that they are being packed into districts which has the effect of diluting their overall voting strength in the state as a whole. 
Uh, so if, you know, if all of the African-American voters are in two districts and they can't influence elections or influence legislators in the other districts. Uh, and the Supreme Court upheld uh, lower court decisions striking down these districts and said and rejected the idea that the fact that there was a partisan motivation could justify or overcome the racial gerrymandering concern. I mean, these cases are, are very important for lots of reasons. One is that uh, I think many people thought that it was possible to sort of insulate gerrymandering entirely uh, from constitutional review by just saying, well, this is partisan and we're allowed to take party into account when we redistrict. And the court said, no, not certainly not in a situation where party and race are so closely correlated as they are in parts of the American South. And I think it opens the door to uh, the court saying in the upcoming case, this coming term, that partisan gerrymandering itself is problematic uh, because being able to rely on the sort of excuse, well, I didn't discriminate on the basis of race, I discriminated on some other basis, might leave a bad taste in the mouth of a number of different justices. And the court will be deciding this upcoming term whether or not there are limit, constitutional limits to how much party can come into play in redistricting. Is that the case out of Wisconsin? Yeah, it's called Gill versus Woodford, and, and it's a very important Woodford, case. Yeah. Okay. David, what, what about you? What case jumped out at you as perhaps the, the blockbuster important? Well, you mentioned the fact that there weren't things that are not blockbusters or there weren't uh, tremendously newsmaking kinds of cases, and some of which that have far-reaching implications but are a little bit more esoteric include uh, things like Bristol-Myers uh, Squibb versus uh, Superior Court of California because that has to do with personal jurisdiction and certainly brought back long memories of law school and civil procedure when you never really thought much about international shoe and worldwide Volkswagen for a long, long time. But the issue of where and when and how someone can bring a lawsuit is really, really important for just about everybody. And the limitations that the court came up with relative to this lawsuit involving uh, Plavix and how they limited the fact that non-residents of California could not file in California courts, even though Plavix was sold. And traditionally, those, are, those were overcame the minimum contacts necessary for finding jurisdiction over Bristol-Myers in the California courts, but they said non-residents for whom there was no damages, no actions took place in California, despite the fact that the defendant had significant contacts with the state of California. It restricted them from their ability to bring lawsuits in such a forum. And it seems like that kind of thing relative to personal jurisdiction and the issues of general jurisdiction, specific jurisdiction, while kind of more esoteric, and like I said, when I was reading that, I hadn't thought about worldwide Volkswagen since um, since law school some 30-odd years ago. But it brings to the forefront of mind that procedure is just as important as substance. And I think the, the court uh, made those kinds of things uh, important both in, in that matter and in uh, Ziegler uh, versus Abbasi relative to restrictions that they placed on uh, people's abilities to bring suits against federal officials for constitutional torts if such a constitutional tort has not been defined 
by the Congress, they've really, really restricted the, the court's abilities to provide damages to uh, people who have had constitutional violations because, of course, Section 1983 allows for suit against state officials, but there's no similar provision for federal officials. And so the, uh, the tendency of the court to restrict access to the courts, I think, is really, it's not blockbuster. It's not the kind of thing that makes headlines or has people walking around with signs in front of the courthouse, but it has tremendous, tremendous implications for the ability of people to enforce their rights. Well, and I think, and uh, certainly Justice Sotomayor in the uh, Bristol Myers case wrote a dissent making you know that very point that this is going to uh, limit the ability of plaintiffs to uh, bring lawsuits against corporations uh, for certain kinds of uh, injuries. So uh, certainly, uh, you know, it, it may be esoteric, but the implications are, are significant. What about, there were a number of business uh, rulings, intellectual property rulings, patent rulings, uh, this term. Carolyn, I, I wonder if you wanted to just kind of speak. I don't know if there's any in particular that you, you would want to speak about, but it seems to be a term in which businesses fared pretty well in the court and uh, got what they wanted. <laughs> Well, that has generally been the one of the themes of the Roberts Court, um, and Bristol Myers Squibb is is definitely an example of that. Another example of that would be the Microsoft versus Baker case. Uh, this is a, a case out of the Ninth Circuit, and it has to do with both of these cases. Really, have to do with the ability, as a practical matter, of groups of plaintiffs being able to band together to bring a lawsuit where it might just not be financially viable for them to do it as individuals or even to do it in smaller groups. Uh, lawsuits are very expensive. They can, you know, there are expert costs. And so that's why people, plaintiffs like to bring class actions or group actions of various kinds. And Bristol-Myers Squibb basically says, well, you can't aggregate claims from around the country in one location in one state outside of particular circumstances. Uh, Microsoft versus Baker says, well, if a Lower court says, uh, you know, we don't think that this is a suitable class action, so we're not we're not going to certify it. Uh, the plaintiffs really have no right to appeal that to the appellate court. That was already fairly clear, and the plaintiffs in the Microsoft case tried to get around that by saying, well, we'll dismiss our individual claims with prejudice so that we can appeal the denial of class certification. The issue was, well, if you're dismissing your individual claims with prejudice or trying to do so conditionally, is there anything left to appeal? And uh, the court said, no, there's not. Uh, and so we're back to the situation where if a defendant can successfully defeat class certification, they may be able to actually successfully defeat the lawsuit as a whole without ever getting to the merits of the case. David, anything on the business side stand out to you in terms of significance? Well, we talked about Bristol Myers, and the, the fact is is that yes, businesses uh, fared very, very well, but that's a tendency under uh, under the Roberts Court, and it will probably it's likely to continue. What about criminal law? Were there any uh, notable decisions in that realm? Well, you know, there were a couple of interesting decisions where. The underlying facts of the cases were, were really extraordinarily disturbing, and the court really, in some sense, kind of reached out to get to the underlying merits. One of those cases is a case out of Texas involving a capital defendant whose own attorney put on the stand an expert who testified that black 
people are more likely to be dangerous than white people. The defendant was black. There, this expert had testified in a series of cases in Texas, and the Texas courts had actually uh, vacated all of the capital sentences except this one involving this expert. And the reason that courts had not vacated this one or in the state of Texas had actually protested vacating this one is because it was the defendant's own attorney who put the expert on the stand as opposed to the prosecution. And the Supreme Court said, no, this guy is entitled to a new sentencing hearing. And kind of interestingly, to some degree, he had to blow past a bunch of different procedural problems that might have made it difficult to get to that outcome um, had they not really truly been outraged by what happened in the trial. We're starting to run low on time here, and I did want to just take a moment to look ahead at the next term a little bit. And David, I wanted to just ask you if you uh, have any thoughts or, or predictions uh, or thoughts about some of the cases that the court is already looking at for uh, the next term. Well, certainly coming up in terms of a blockbuster or something that has gotten a lot of headlines will be the arguments and ultimate decision on the Trump immigration orders. Although, frankly, it does seem like the uh, decision to stay in part and go with uh, Justice Roberts' approach to uh, reach compromise and create a bit of an exception for people with contacts in the in the country gives a pretty good preview, I believe, on what the court's going to wind up doing with those uh, executive orders. They're either, well, one of two situations is going to happen. Either, they're, of course, they have certain terms uh, 90 and 120 days for different kinds of reviews and things like that. So they, the court might determine that uh, the cases are moot because the orders are uh, the orders have expired and done their work. Or, in fact, they might wind up deciding them. But I think there's a good preview of the fact that they're going to uphold the president in those circumstances. And, of course, uh, Justice Thomas and, again, Justice Gorsuch objected to the fact that the court carved out an exception for people with the contacts. And essentially, it would appear as though they told both the Ninth and Fourth Circuits that uh, it's incredible that these are, in fact, the powers of the president. In terms of a preview, we discussed uh, Ziegler versus Abbasi earlier and the limitations on certain certain actions. And there's a, there's a line in Ziegler versus Abbasi in terms of how the court should be reluctant to intrude upon Congress and the president when it comes to matters of national security. And I found that line that was in Ziegler versus Abbasi almost probably a preview of what we're going to wind up seeing in the Trump immigration orders. Carolyn, what's on your radar for the term ahead. Well, obviously, like David, I'm, I'm looking at the Trump immigration case. And, and I would add, I think my money is on the court actually never reaching the merits. I think that they crafted an extremely clever order that allows the executive order to kind of run its course so that by the time the court would be hearing arguments, it would essentially be moot. Uh, and I think that was done deliberately. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts, I suspect, really doesn't want to be in the middle of this kind of very partisan, very public political fight if he can avoid it. I mean, I would say the other big case I'm focused on, again, is this partisan gerrymandering case out of Wisconsin. Partisan gerrymandering creates enormous skew in both state legislatures and in Congress in terms of the percentage of representatives who are of a certain party as opposed to the percentage of voters who vote for those parties. There's some studies that say as many as 22 members of Congress would be Democrats as opposed to Republicans. Um, if it were not for partisan gerrymandering. So my eye is very much on that case. 
We're just about out of time. Before we wrap up, I do want to give each of you an opportunity to give your closing thoughts on the just completed term. David, let's start with you. I would say, as we talked about, business fared very, very well. Um, there was more uh, restriction on access to the courts, both uh, in uh, Ziegler and, uh, and Bristol-Myers, which is uh, kind of a disturbing situation. I do know that they also uh, declined to decide a number of things, as I, as I indicated at the, uh, at the top of the show. Certainly among them was the um, North Carolina voter ID law, but uh, in, in the upcoming uh, situation, there's a, there's a similar Texas case that they might wind up uh, deciding those things, and voter ID circumstances are certainly important to consider. And we really don't know yet Justice Gorsuch, but as, uh, as the professor pointed out, he has, in fact, stepped out uh, early on and to kind of uh, distinguish himself and sort of indicate uh, that he will be a force in the, in the days to come. And David, where can our listeners find more about your work and about your latest book? They can uh, find me on uh, Twitter, at Shestokas, S-H-E-S-T-O-S. K-A-S. And of course, there's my own website, shastokas.com. My most recent book is, uh, you mentioned uh, creating the Declaration of Independence. Just came out the 14th of June in time for the 4th of July, because certainly, as I believe, it's very, very unfortunate. Many, many people know that there's fireworks and hot dogs and barbecues, but hardly anybody knows why. Uh, and it's uh, it's a terrible, terrible shame that they don't understand that these, uh, these men that were uh, doing this at that time in fact, really, in reality, face the possibility of having their heads cut off. And it's a shame that I think we've lost those situations. So creating the Declaration of Independence is, in fact, available on Amazon, both in Kindle and print. And I would uh, hope that people would uh, visit that and also take a look at Constitutional Soundbites, which has 150 uh, frequently asked, I think they're frequently asked questions about, uh, oh, things like, what did Jefferson mean when he said all men are created equal? And we answer that in about 90 or a hundred words. Great. I'll check it out. Carolyn Shapiro, your final thoughts today. Well, I think in a lot of ways, this term could be summed up as everybody was holding their breath, uh, waiting to see first what was going to happen with the election. And then, of course, who was going to be appointed to replace Justice Scalia. And next term, we'll sort of see the consequences of all of that. It's going to be a much more important term in terms of the types of cases that are going to be heard. And I, I think one thing that's going to be interesting to watch is the relationship between what's happening in politics at large and how the court responds. I, I don't know that I have a prediction about that other than to say that I think the chief justice cares a lot about the court's institutional standing uh, and the, its, its institutional legitimacy. And so he would be reluctant to have the court perceived as a purely partisan and purely political entity. We saw that arguably in the first Obamacare case where he split from the other conservatives to uh, vote to uphold Obamacare. So, I, you know, we may see more of that kind of that kind of effort, on, at least on his part, to avoid what looks like overtly partisan determinate decisions by the court. And Carolyn, what's the uh, how can our listeners learn more about your work and uh, follow up uh, with you if they want to do that? So my Twitter handle is at cshaplaw. That's C S H A P L A W. And the best way to find other things that I've written and written about is uh, through my faculty page at www.kentlaw.iit.edu. 
We've been speaking today with David J. Shostokas, author of the book, Creating the Declaration of Independence, and Carolyn Shapiro, Associate Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Institute on the Supreme Court of the United States at Chicago Kent College of Law. Uh, David and Carolyn, thanks very much for being with us today. I really appreciated your insights. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Bob. That about does it for this week's show. That's all we've got for you. Thanks for listening. Please remember, uh, if you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Join us again next time for another great legal topic. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.